And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua the son of Jozadak, his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second month of the second year of the coming of the, to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren and the priests and Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. This is the word of God. We pick up where we left off last week. The people of Israel have returned from 70 years of exile in Babylon, just as God had promised. They're back in the land of Israel, and by this time, they've taken time as they've returned to their cities to build their houses. They've established shelter for themselves, and um, this is now their permanent dwelling. They're back at home. Uh, but if you remember, when God released them from their captivity in Babylon, when Cyrus sent them back, he sent them back, <clears throat> and God released them with a specific job to do. They didn't go back just to make new lives for themselves. They didn't go back just to have new homes, uh, to start their businesses back up in the land of their fathers. But they had come back home. They had come back to Jerusalem to build a temple. They had come back to primarily reestablish, to restore worship. 
That's what God was most concerned with. And that's his primary concern with your life and mine. We have goals and dreams and things we, we hope to accomplish in our lives. And that's fine. We want to do all of these things. But in all things, God's number one concern for us is that we are people who are captivated by worship of God. Our goal, our, our purpose is to worship God in everything that we do. And so we saw in Israel, in, in this, just as we see all throughout history in Israel and in the church, this pattern of, of sin and rebellion from God, which leads to destruction. And for Israel, it was exile. And then that leads to salvation, God restoring His people just as He promised He would. And then that must result in a restoration of worship. It's a, it's a predictable cycle, and we see it even in, in church history. Probably one of the most well-known examples is that of the Protestant Reformation. How the, the, the Catholic Church had taken over in such a way and, and worship had been distorted and the people weren't familiar with the Word of God. Um, and they weren't even allowed to have a copy of the Bible. But then when the Reformers come along and, and they read the Bible for themselves and realize that what they've always heard isn't exactly true, uh, there's a, a Reformation that took place there in the church and, in fact, a splintering of the church uh, as worship was restored. And that doesn't just happen in, happen, hasn't just happened in Israel or in the Reformation, but that happens in almost every generation of church history. Every generation, in fact, every individual must ensure that worship has its proper place. You know, your parents may have worshipped God, but if it isn't upheld, eventually you're going to fall into sin. Or maybe you can think of a time when your grandparents or your great-grandparents worshipped God and served the Lord in His church, but then when it came to your grandparents or to your parents, you see a falling away, a sliding, and, and now it's come to you and you have to make a decision. Is, is your life going to center around the worship of God? Is God going to have your full attention, all of your heart? And a lot of people look back at earlier days in the church and they think, man, we, we remember a time when the church was full, when people were getting saved, when people sang with, with all their heart to the top of their, their voices. And things just aren't like that anymore. Let me tell you, in every generation, we have to do the work of making sure that worship has its proper place. And sometimes that means full restoration, a return to what God has commanded. And so here Israel is, they're back in Jerusalem, and they've come, and they've come with this job uh, to rebuild the temple and to restore worship among their people. And so I want to ask this question and answer it just by giving you some, some one-word headings through this passage. What happens when worship is restored? Or what does it look like when God's people worship rightly? I have six of these. We'll spend more time on some than others. Number one, unity. Unity. Look at verse 1 in chapter 3. The seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. 50,000 people have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the writer of Ezra tells us that they gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They were of one mind and of singular purpose in what they had gathered to do. No one had any questions, any doubt about what was expected and what they intended. And that was to worship God. Truly, Psalm 133 is, is accurate. He says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
And anyone who has ever experienced disunity can say amen to that. Anyone who's ever experienced strife in a congregation, in a church, can say, oh yes, how blessed, how good it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. Amen? Uh, this is especially necessary in the church. If it was necessary in Israel, it's necessary in the church. We see it in the very beginning of the church. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 tells us that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were of one mind. They were praying for the same thing. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, just as Jesus had uh, promised. In Ephesians 4, Paul said this to the church. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring. It takes effort. It takes work. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's why. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You know why you should have unity as a congregation? You should have unity as a church because you are all inhabited, if you've been born again, with the same Holy Spirit of God. We are bound together by one Spirit. We've been baptized into one body. We belong to one Lord. We should be able to function and live as one people of the same mind and of the same purpose. If we endeavor to keep the spirit of, the, of unity, if we stick to what God has said in His Word, we can have the kind of unity where we can say the church came together, the congregation came together as one man. May God do that here. May God give us such unity. It's not just what we saw in the beginning of the church. It's not just what we expect to see in the church today, but it's what we're going to be for all eternity. Listen to what John writes in Revelation 5. He says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures, the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. He doesn't have enough zeros to tell you how many people are gathered around the throne in heaven. Saying with a loud voice, Altogether, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. You see, we need to live in unity now because whether you like it or not and whether you think it's possible or not, there is a day coming when we shall dwell together in unity for all eternity and united as one voice, we will forever sing praises to the Lamb who was slain for us. We will give glory to God for all eternity together as one man and with one voice. You see, all of God's people are united in Him. We will worship Him perfectly for all eternity. So my prayer is that God's people would live out this life of unity that is already ours now. And that we would worship God as He deserves now. May God bring it to pass. And number two, obedience. Obedience. That is specifically obedience to God's word. Look at verse 2. He says, Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the sons of Shealtiel, and his brethren, 
arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. What's the last phrase? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They couldn't simply worship any way that they pleased. They came to build the altar for a reason, and that was because God had prescribed His method of worship for them in His Word. They had the law of Moses. They knew because God had commanded them how to worship. And perhaps now more than ever, the church needs to be reminded that we can't just worship God any way that we please. You see, there's some competing ideas out there. One side says that anything that isn't forbidden in Scripture is okay uh, to incorporate into your worship. A lot of people take that view. Uh, the Bible doesn't say you can't have a water slide that leads into the baptistry. So, you know, we can have a water slide that leads into the baptistry if we want. This is an exaggeration. I don't know of anyone who's done that. But then the other side and another view, and here's the one that I believe, is that we simply need to do what is prescribed in Scripture. Don't give ourselves that kind of freedom, that kind of liberty. Let's simply do what God has commanded for us to do. And if we just do what God's commanded, guess what? I don't think churches would wear people out so much. I don't think people would get burnt out, worn out serving the church if we would just do what God commanded us to do. And take away all the fluff. Trim off all the edges. See, there are some specific things that God has prescribed. And if you want scriptures for these, I can give them to you, but we won't take time now. God has prescribed singing. We're all in agreement there. We like to sing. God has prescribed preaching. You might not like preaching, but God's given it to you. Praying. When we gather together, we should pray. Now, just listen to the guy up front. But pray with one another. We should be reading scripture. We should be giving an offering. We'll talk more about that. We should be baptizing new believers. We should be taking part in the Lord's Supper. Those are the things that God has commanded us to do when we gather for worship. And we must be faithful to do what He has said. Worship Him as He has prescribed in His Word. That's it. Anything else is an addition of man. Anything less, anything that we neglect is a neglect of God's design. We don't want to leave anything out either. Notice the simplicity of their worship here. They only had an altar. They didn't wait until they had the entire temple rebuilt to start bringing their sacrifices and offerings and worshiping God. They built the altar just as God had commanded and immediately they started worshiping. Don't worry about the size of your congregation. Don't worry about the, the facilities that you have. Don't worry about the quality of production that we have on the platform. Don't worry about the number of our resources, the size of our budget. Those things aren't the things that matter. Simply be obedient and worship God the way He's prescribed in His Word. Those other things are just additions. Third, fear. Number three is fear. And by fear, I mean the fear of God more than the fear of man. Verse 3 says, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries... They set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. You see, they were out of their land for 70 years. Guess what? Other people had come in. Other people are living in their land from other countries around. And here they are. They've returned and they're afraid of those people. They might think that we're here to, to kick them out or to wage war or, or do something like, something like that. And they were afraid. 
And they might be tempted to, to hold off on their worship because they don't want to offend the other people in their land. But they feared God more than man. And verse 3 says that even though fear had come upon them, they worshipped at the altar. They brought their sacrifices morning and evening. And friends, let me just simply make this point. They chose to worship despite their fear. We can't, when we come to worship, be too concerned with the people around us and what they're going to think when we worship. Listen, you might not think you're a great singer, and that's okay. Come stand next to me. I won't be offended. Don't worry about what people around you think if they hear you sing. Don't worry about what people around you think if you utter an amen under your breath. Heaven forbid we say amen in this Baptist church. <laughs> Thank you. May your tribe increase. You know, don't, don't worry about what other people think when you gather to worship. You can't have a fear of man. And you know what? Should the day come when, when the world outside is so opposed to Christianity and to the church that it, you are physically putting yourself at risk by gathering here? Even then, may you fear God more than man and gather with his people anyway to worship. So that's number three is fear. Number four is focus. Focus. What was the focus of their worship here? It was on their sacrifices, their offerings. Verse 3 through 6, we can, we can read this of how they brought the offerings morning and evening. They recognized the festivals, the feasts that God had prescribed in His Word. And every one of those, they're bringing sacrifices. They're bringing offerings. Some of those offerings, some of those sacrifices would have been for sin. As a covering for their sin before God. To make atonement. And some of those offerings would have been uh, simply an act of worship. A gift given back to God in praise. And in a sense, our own worship ought to focus on sacrifice in two ways. The sacrifice for our sin and the sacrifice for our worship. You see, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12 says, Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. You see, this old system, these, these offerings that were brought, these sacrifices that were made, this blood that was shed on the altar to make covering for sin was just a foreshadowing, a prediction of something that was to come. And when He came, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. He came as the sacrifice for sin, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And He laid down His life willingly as an offering for your sin once for all. No more sacrifice, no more offering is to be made to cover your sin. Jesus did it. And when we put our faith in Him alone, we are forgiven, we are set free, we're washed in His blood. And we are set free. And so Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. And when we gather to worship, that sacrifice ought to be our focus. To give our attention to Him, to praise Him, to give Him glory for His giving His own life for us. And because of His sacrifice for our sins, we offer ourselves as a sacrifice to Him for worship. Paul told the Romans, chapter 12, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice acceptable to God. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Or as some of your translations say, your spiritual worship. 
Because Jesus was the sacrifice for our sins, because we are set free, because we have been forgiven, we in turn give ourselves back to God as an offering of worship. That's what we do when we gather here to worship God. We give attention to what He has done for us and we offer ourselves back to Him as a gift. Use me, Lord, any way you please. Have your way in my life. That's our worship. So that's focus. Number five is, y'all are going to love this one, funding. <laughs> funding. Uh, they funded the work through giving. And number, uh, verse seven here <clears throat> It says that they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. I don't think I have to really tell you this, but any organized effort to do God's work will take money. It takes giving. It takes generosity from God's people. It took money to build a temple. Uh, listen, have y'all seen lumber prices lately? <laughs> um, I don't know if I should tell you this or not. We watched The Little Rascals the other night, like the 1999 version. Joel loved it. <laughs> and they were complaining about how it was going to cost $450 to buy lumber to build a, a fort or a clubhouse. And I thought, man, $450, that's, that's not a bad deal <laughs> for what they're looking at. Listen, it, it, it cost them something to build this temple. They came to do a job that they knew would cost them something. And they offered money. They gave of themselves uh, to make sure the work would get done. Listen, it takes money to do the work of the church. Uh, it takes uh, money uh, to send missionaries to the field. It, sends, it takes money to fund outreach and to take uh, and meet needs of people in our own community. In the Old Testament, God required a tithe from His people, a tenth of, of what they had. In Malachi, 10, or Malachi 3, He said, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. That's what He told them in the Old Testament. You give your tithe, you give your tenth, and just test me. See if I won't bless you. Here's what he says in the New Testament. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. He said, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We understand that. That makes sense. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. He doesn't give you a number. He doesn't say it has to be a tithe or a tenth. It's 5% or 20% or whatever. He says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a what? Cheerful giver. Whatever you can give to the Lord and be happy about it, give it. But know this, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. I'm not standing up here and tell you to, to sow your faith seed and give $1,000 to the preacher and God will give you a new car. Listen, that's not my message. I don't know what form God's blessings will return to you. It probably won't happen that way. But I do know this, that if those who were under the law of Moses 
Those whose relationship to God was bound up in bringing an animal to a priest who took it into the presence of God and offered it for them. They didn't even get to go themselves. If those people who were seeing through a glass dimly, darkly, gave a tithe, gave a tenth, how much more generous ought the people who have seen God in His Son? How much more generous ought the people of God be who have been born again, who get to come to Him in prayer and thanksgiving, who get to fellowship Him by the power of the Holy Spirit every single day? How much more should we give ourselves to God? God doesn't want a tenth of your income. He wants a hundred percent. He wants all of it. All of you. In whatever way it belongs to the Lord. Be generous in your giving. The plate's in the back for you on your way out the door. <laughs> Number six, this will be the last one, singing. I don't think I have to preach too hard on singing. Most of you like to sing. Verse 10, you see verse in, in verse 8 and 9 how they had come and they, they separated and divided up the work and they laid the foundation for the temple. Verse 10 says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And here's their song. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. The verse goes on and says, Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They sang and they shouted. And the following verses say that the shout was heard a great way off. I'm kind of doubting that the nursery heard our singing this morning. <laughs> Maybe. I think they might have a speaker in there. Uh, but it wasn't because we were just so jubilant in our praise and in our shouting that our voices carried. I doubt our neighbors across the, the yard here heard our singing. But these people were so thrilled at the work that God had done in, in, in seeing him keep his promise. And now it's just the foundation. They don't even have the whole temple yet. They have an altar and a foundation and they're just singing praise to God for it. When the foundation had been laid for the new temple, those who had just returned to their land from exile recognized the work that God was doing among them and they could not help but sing. If we had a, a better grasp of what God has done for us in salvation, in His promises, in all the blessings, we would burst with song. We would overflow with shouting and singing. Even if you don't think you can sing, sing. You kids, learn these songs. They'll stick with you. Sing. Make melody in your heart to the Lord. He will be praised. Uh, let me give you an addendum here, if I may. <clears throat> Not everyone was singing. Uh, verse 12 <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 12 and 13 says, But many of the, the priests and Levites, the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. 
Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. The people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Here's a couple of truths that they may hurt, but they're true. Um, the young aren't often very sensitive to the experiences of the older. Young people come along and they see a work that needs to be done and a method that they want to follow to, to do it, and they don't really give a lot of thought to the generations that came before them. It's easy just to write that off and say, oh yeah, you bunch of old fogies, we're going to do it this way, this is how, this is how it's going to happen. Some of y'all said, yeah, that pastor we got does that. Likes to throw out the old and doesn't care a thing about our heritage, our past. Uh, the second truth is, is this, is that the older are often skeptical of new things uh, that are done by the young. And both of those things are equally true. Younger don't give much thought to the older and the older are often a little skeptical of the younger. Are we in agreement there? That's probably how it plays out. We've got to learn to work together anyway. As a, as a 29-year-old a pastor, I see things that need to be done. Maybe with a little fresher eyes than some of you, just because you've been here longer. And I might have a method or a way that I want to do something. But I've got to be sensitive to the people who have been here for as long as some of these guys. You know, they saw the old temple that was there 60, 70 years ago. They know how it used to be. And so I need to have a sensitivity to that. And at the same time, the older who remember the days of the past and the glory of days gone by, don't see things the way they used to be. And now you see something new coming along. And at the same time, you've got to try to refrain from being skeptical. Okay, let's keep a little bit of an open mind. Are we being obedient to what God has said? So we have to work together in that. The days of the past are just that. They are days of the past. When I'm an old man, I'm going to look back at these days and I say, listen, you guys, you're not doing it the way I would have done it. You're not doing it the way I thought it ought to be done. That is not how we did things in the 2020s. That's going to sound like a long time ago one day. And so in every generation, we've got to be sensitive to those who are there in the past and, and, and give honor to the things that God has done in the past. But not neglect the new work that God is doing in our own day. Because of Israel's sin, that beautiful, that glorious temple that Solomon had built is gone forever. That's just a consequence of sin. Those glorious days won't come back again for them. They might not have been excited about the size or the beauty of this new temple because, it, let's just be honest, it wasn't nearly as big and nearly as beautiful as Solomon's. But because God had kept His promise to return them from exile, because God was at work in restoring worship to a new generation, they had every reason to praise God. It might not look like it did when they were young, but God was at work in that new generation, and they needed to give Him praise for it. Friends, let's, let's be united. Let's obey God's Word. Let's fear God more than any man. 
Let's keep our focus where it belongs. Let's give cheerfully and generously. And let's sing from our hearts to the Lord. Let's praise Him, yes, for the work that He's done in the past. And let's look ahead to what He's doing in this generation. Friends, my invitation to you is simply this. Let's worship the Lord. Because He's worthy of it. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we praise you that we have this privilege to gather and worship. There's no other place, no other organization that I'm aware of where such diverse people come together in one place for one purpose. Where you can have people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s gather with people in their teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. And be united in purpose. That only happens in your church. Our backgrounds are different. Our preferences are different. Our, our likes and dislikes are different. But Lord, you have called us and made us one people. Bound together by one spirit. For one purpose. And that's to worship you. So God, I pray that you would give this church that kind of unity. And that in whatever way you are working right now, that we would acknowledge it, give you thanks for it, and plow ahead, enthusiastic about what you're doing in your church today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.